This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the wonderful world of Remnant Radio. As you can see, I've got Michael Roundtree here along with our new friend, Dr. Uh, Randy Clark. We've got an exciting program for you today as we're talking about the NAR debate, the new apostolic reformation. Uh, uh, Randy Clark is here to help us uh, discuss his perspective, uh, which would be opposite from a uh, program we had last year with Doug and Holly Pivik discussing uh, the new Apostolic Reformation book that they released. Uh, great, great material uh, that we have both in that episode and in this episode. So you guys stay tuned. You won't want to miss it. You are watching The Remnant Radio, a crowd-funded show where we interview pastors, teachers, historians, and theologians from different churches and denominations. My name is Joshua Lewis, and this is my co-host, Michael Roundtree. Together, we want to help you break outside of your theological echo chambers. If you're interested in learning about history, theology, or the gifts of the Spirit, this is the show for you. You may actually notice that we are streaming to both Facebook and to the YouTubes uh, as our normal practice. If you're watching there on Facebook, we'll be streaming there for about 30 minutes, maybe up to an hour, and then we'll cut the stream, finishing everything out on YouTube. So make sure to join us over there on YouTube uh, because it's it's where all the fun is. So uh, guys, thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Remnant Radio. As a quick reminder, we are an entirely crowdfunded ministry. So if you've been blessed by this episode or other content we've produced in the past, we encourage you to give in the links in the description. There are two ways to give. You can give on PayPal as a one-time gift, or you can be a reoccurring giver there on Patreon as low as five bucks a month. You get access to extra content. Uh, we do book clubs, live Q&As. Sometimes we interview speakers with some extra content there on Patreon. So without further ado, I want to introduce you to my buddy, Michael Roundtree. Michael, how are you doing there over in Oklahoma? Yeah. Like you always do, but uh, doing really well here in the Oklahomas in Oklahoma. I had a a great show yesterday talking about testing prayer. I had a couple of scientists on the show talk, uh, really encouraging for your faith, just and uh, measurable results of answered prayer. Uh, that was exciting. Uh, tomorrow, we're going to talk about, we're going to respond to, uh, you know, people saying, why do you have false teachers on the show sometimes? And uh, we're going to talk about that. And and how do we use that label, false teachers? So that's going to be Wednesday. Uh, and of course, Josh, you mentioned that we've already done a few episodes on the New Apostolic Reformation. Definitely, I think you guys should, should go back and check those out. And we had the opposing view because that is what we do on Remnant Radio. We, uh, we have uh, different views from within orthodoxy so we can uh, talk things through as Christian brothers and sisters. So uh, on that note, uh, Dr. Randy Clark, we're so excited to have you on the show. Uh, just grateful to God that you were able to join us. And, and we think that uh, 
this topic is going to be really enlightening for some people. So uh, before we dive into the topic, uh, Randy, could you tell us just a little bit about yourself, about your ministry, maybe any books that you've written that, uh, that we could maybe just learn a little bit more about you and your views and, and, and your ministry? Yeah, thank you. Uh, I want to, I'm grateful to be with you, uh, Michael and Joshua. I've watched some of your programs. I did watch the ones on NAR and, and some of my friends when, when they were on your show. Uh, I've been in the ministry since 18 years old. I turned 70 in February, this last February, so uh, 52 years. Uh, I was a church planter, a pastor, uh, evangelist, apostolic, um, president of a seminary. We started six years ago. That's uh, Global Awakening Theological Seminary. It's part of the Family Faith Christian University. Uh, we have um, just started our two doctoral programs in the seminary, uh, Doctor of Ministry and Ph.D. And we have, I think, six programs in the uh, master's and we have bachelor's level as well. I felt like the Lord told me uh, many years ago that I was to be involved in equipping the saints for the work of ministry. Everything I've done was filtered after Toronto started through a three-fold mandate. I'm to be a firelighter, a vision caster, and a bridge builder. Uh, firelighter in the sense of being used uh, of God to for touch for the Holy Spirit to touch people, uh, see revival, uh, touch people. Um, the vision caster was to talk about a vision of a, a form of Christianity that's closer to uh, New Testament apostolic Christianity. And uh, the and the beliefs that all the gifts are still for today, and uh, the bridge builder, and part of the, also the vision casting was very much concerned about ecumenical uh, ecumenism and working with other denominations. So I got I've got to be used of God amongst Roman Catholics, uh, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, Anglicans, uh, Pentecostals, classical Pentecostals, Charismatics third wave evangelicals, lots of new apostolic movements uh, around the world. And uh, God said, I'm going to send you around the world. This was in 1994. I'm going to send you around the world and I'm going to give you a, a, a doctorate in revival. And I'm going to let you meet some of the greatest pastors and leaders and evangelists in the world, learn from them, then come back and, and uh, teach others in the United States what you've learned. And he, he basically said, I know you want to get a doctorate. I didn't have a doctorate at the time, so I'm going to give you mine. And then uh, since then, though, I've, um, I earned a doctorate of ministry and was awarded an uh, honorary doctorate as well. So that's a little bit of, about me. I've been uh, married uh, since 1975, four adult children, all of them married, and then the 10th grandchild on the way. And so, I, and I was in the vineyard movement from uh, 84. Four till 2001. And I oversee a network of churches when ministry is about 500. And if you include the ones that some of those people oversee, it's around uh, 23,000 churches. Wow, awesome. Okay. Well, thank you again for making time. I know we talked about uh, getting together maybe and, and doing something, and you were like, man, if we get together to film something, it's a day I don't get to be on the road making disciples, preaching the gospel. Uh, so, you know, I understand that you are you're a busy guy and to make time for a conversation like this that I hope will, in fact, fulfill some of that vision casting of bridge building. Um, uh, I think it's really important. And you'll, you'll notice we've been uh, we even posted in the, in the description of this video and our Facebook post. You know, we 
kind of side with Doug and Holly, and we kind of side a little bit with Dr. Brown and Randy on this. We we think that often the NAR title is thrown around way too eagerly as like a charismatic slur. Uh, and then at other times, we, we see that, you know, uh, there are a few of these criteria that Doug and Holly have outlined in their book that we go, man, those are compelling as well. And we see charismatics fit into that description as well. So we can see the argument from both sides. But I think before we even dive into the data and the argumentation, it's probably important that we define some of our terms. Uh, when Doug and Holly are using terms apostolic and new apostolic reformation, uh, uh, Dr. Clark, the way that you use uh, uh, apostles and new apostolic reformation are going to be different. And I think from there uh, should probably start our discussion. So could you help us by just defining our terms when it comes to new apostolic reformation? Where did it come from? See Peter Wagner's description. Do you affirm that? Would you take a nuanced view on that? And then how would you view the ministry of apostles? Well, I would say that I think Peter was the first one to actually use the term New Apostolic Reformation. He's also the first one to term like third wave movement. A lot, he did a lot of terming. <laughs> he gave a lot of titles to things. Um, sometimes they were helpful. Sometimes they weren't. Um, I remember before he sent out or published his book on Dominion, I wrote him an email and said, please don't use this title. It's going to be really misunderstood. And uh, but, you know, I didn't win that discussion. So anyway, uh, I think it's now being republished and under a different title. So there's there are different things. I, I think that his, in my opinion, just where I disagree, is his understanding of uh, the new apostolic reformation that, that he gave that title to is way too broad. He would use terms for apostles that um, I think is outside and beyond the New Testament understanding of apostles. I understand what he means when he defines the term. I can see things, you know, that oh, I, I understand it. It's not that it's wrong in the sense of uh, that person may be apostolic, but are, would I call him an apostle? I, would, I wouldn't, uh, especially when it has nothing to do with the, with the church. So when you got business uh, apostolics, apostles in the business field, I understand what they're meaning. God using people who have a similar gift mix. Um I just don't think I would give him that title. Um, so that'd be one difference. I think he included way too many people. He included people that weren't even charismatics in that original, one of his original books, I think um, Churchquake, I think it was. You know, like if you had a big church and if you're an entrepreneur and you've grown a big church, he would include you in the new apostolic reformation, particularly if you had um, a lot of authority to lead that church. Is that similar uh, to how Alan Hirsch defines the apest? I don't know if you're familiar with his work, but he would call anyone that does entrepreneurial work apostolic, even though he doesn't come at it from a charismatic bent. Probably. I don't know. I haven't, okay. I, I haven't read his book. Though I have to say I have read about six or seven books about New Apostolic Reformation since I found out I'm supposed to be one of the leaders in it <laughs> a year ago. Um, which I had no idea I was even listed as one of the main, and the Revival Alliance, which I'm a part of, is now by some people say it's the main thing in it, which is we're not. We're not nearly as big as some of the other uh, apostolic movements. Um, but, okay. and, and there is a great diversity. So I, I think that one of the issues is there, there's such a large number of things that Holly and Doug uh, Guyvet put together 
as the if you have these things in you are or if you have some of these things, you are new apostolic reformation. Uh, and if you got a big enough net and you have enough hooks out there, you, you can hook about everybody to some degree. But it's it's not fair. And uh, for example, I don't really consider myself part of the new apostolic reformation from because I don't agree with all of the definitions. Like I don't agree that the office of apostle ever ended. I think the title ended, but the function and the office and the gift to the church never ended. So mm-hmm. because it, you can't have a new if the if it if it's if it's already been in existence. So you know that's one of the one of the issues that I would have a little difference with um, the title, the definition, and even the way Peter used it. Um, and I but but I do think that. Um, that there are a lot of of um, new movements that are out there, and and some of them are really balanced, and some of them aren't so balanced. But uh, it's just not the apostles that can cause problems. You guys, you know, probably been more heresies from false teachers than false apro- uh, false apostles. It seems like, well, there's such a fear that the if you got the word apostle, then that's where the heresy can come from. But throughout the history of the church, you you have a lot of the uh, uh, misguided teachings and some of the things that were called heresies were from bishops or from uh, presbyters of churches uh, or, or, or just strong Bible teachers. Okay. So, well, uh, yeah. And what I'm saying is false teaching is not limited to one, one office, one gift. Okay. Yeah. And uh, and so Josh was talking a moment ago about how we have some differences and some similarities. And, and we would agree that uh, our, our assessment uh, of Holly and Doug's, uh, Doug's book and their research on the New Apostolic Reformation, uh, we did find it helpful in a number of ways. And I'll, and I'll read a segment from their book in just a moment so we can really clarify this definition of NAR. But, but one of, uh, one of our pushbacks was that we, we did feel like it, it painted with a broad stroke. Now, to be fair, if Peter Wagner was defining it with a broad stroke and then they painted with a broad stroke, <laughs> you know, it, it, they're going back to the source of where it all began with, with Peter Wagner and defining the term. So, uh, but with that said, you know, we, Jack Deere in their book was labeled as new apostolic reformation. He definitely in a thousand different ways was not, uh, what they described as new apostolic reformation. Mike Bickle was just defined as new apostolic reformation. And then Randy, what you said, they, they did have a response to the idea that, um, a lot of people who are in the New Apostolic Reformation don't even know it and would define themselves as overtly not the New Apostolic Reformation. But because we see these characteristics, we say they are. And, and so they do kind of address that. But but I, what I'd like to do is I'd like to read a quote from their book. And it's from the opening pages of their book and, and sort of defining the issue. And um, for instance, the sentence begins with the biggest innovation of the New Apostolic Reformation. So uh, my ears perk up when I see that. That's a, a, a real superlative phrase there. Okay, so so what is it? And, and um, I think this would help our viewers kind of understand what we're really talking about or what at least Holly and Doug are talking about. And then maybe you could clarify, Randy, if you agree with this statement, disagree with this statement. But I'll go ahead and read it. They say, uh, the biggest innovation of uh, of the New Apostolic Reformation... NAR 
is the belief that apostles working together with prophets must take governance of the church, taking the reins from pastors, elders, and denominational leaders so that God's end times plans can be fulfilled and Christ can return. Churches that do not submit to the authority of the present day apostles and prophets will sit on the sidelines as mere spectators. And the key word in this statement is authority. And I think if I my takeaway from their book is, is this is the biggest thing uh, that they keep bringing up again and again with different manifestations. For instance, it might be an apostle has a revelation about a certain principality over a certain region, and only that apostle can bring down that principality. Or maybe it's this apostle is the only one who has authority to bring this new teaching uh, to the church. And Josh and I get real uncomfortable with the phrase new teaching. And, <laughs> and doing Remnant Radio, we see this too often. We, we do see people coming with new teachings based on prophetic revelation. And our stance is, Man, teaching should be based on the written revelation of the Bible. Teaching is not to be based upon the spontaneous revelation of prophecy. And so we see people teaching these things. And so we read Doug Doug and Holly's book and we're like, oh, yeah, that does exist. Even if the people claim they're not that, it seems to exist. But all of that, whether it's a new practice, such as calling down principalities, whether it's a new teaching based on the authority of this apostle, they all come back to the apostles, uh, and, and which really biblically, the exegetical um, sort of moorings for this would be Ephesians 2.20, that God gave apostles and prophets as foundations for the church. And so uh, somebody that Holly and Doug might label as a NAR could point to that verse and say, oh, look, we're having the, the we're, we as the apostles and prophets are part of this foundation and we kind of define how things go. So with all that said, do you agree that this authority issue is really the crux of it? Do you see any truth in what Doug and Holly said, or would you entirely differ with them? I would disagree with about 90% of it. Based upon the survey that I did of 42 people, two of them were not apostles. They were professors in very recognized theological seminaries. I wanted their opinion on um, almost all of them, almost all of them, except one. There's like 6%. I'll get 6%. That'd be one of the ones who said, oh, well, I did. He did believe in lots of power and authority. Almost all of them disagreed. That's not the way they run their church. That's not the way they run the, uh, the network. Um, they, the, the authority, and then that is a, a, that's a big issue. That's one I spent a lot of time trying to ask the question from different ways in the survey that I did with many apostles from, from North America. And um, uh, so I would say, first of all, based on the survey I did, no, that's not right. That was wrong. And their fear is wrong. It's ill-founded. Now, are there mm-hmm. some people somewhere that may be abused of power? Yes, but hey, I was a Baptist and I saw Baptist pastors learn how to use the system and could abuse the power. I think that in any type of organization, if you get the wrong heart, there can be a, an abuse of power, not just um, um, in apostolic networks. By the way, the apostolic networks that I've interviewed, almost all of them have no legal power to uh, control at all. It's all relational. And it's if you feel like this person has wisdom, that God's using them. Like I have a Baptist friend in Brazil right now. He has, I just found out 
Uh, I'm going in a few weeks to work with him. He has 25,000 pastors around the world, most of them in Brazil, but also from Africa and Europe and Asia and all over um, that look to him for leadership. He's one of the most humble men I've ever met. Um, he's one of the best pastors I've ever met. And uh, when I met him, he had 170 people. He's got 20 some thousand in his church now. And uh, he's, he's basically given away everything that God's taught him. And he's multiplied their cell systems to three to others by doing conferences to 350,000 cells just in Brazil every week with three and a half million mainly new believers in them. I think he's you can call him a super pastor, but he's humble. He believes in the supernatural. Uh, he 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 walks in humility, uh, you know, so. He does not control. I mean, people, they, because he's blessed them, he helped them. He's helped them to grow. He's helped them to understand the word better. He's helped them to um, be able to uh, build the nets to maintain the harvest that they're having. So, but if they don't want to relate to him, don't want to do what he says, he has absolutely no control other than they leave. So less, and less so control in the, in, than like a it, denomination would, like many like even in the Assemblies of God, a Pentecostal, classical Pentecostal denomination, many of them have their their 501c3 under the 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 national branch, if you will. They they have their their buildings under the national branch, and if they step out of line, things can get literal physical property yeah. can often be you know seized yeah. if necessary. That's where the real issue. That's where the real ability to control them is, and well, that's what I don't understand. And I think in Doug and in, in uh, Holly's book, they start out with setting a, and, and somewhere early in the book, they said setting aside the bishop, office of bishop, setting that aside. I said, no, you can't set that aside. That's unfair because the bishop is to be the successor of the apostles is the way it's set up in the historic churches. And so mm -hmm. they in their job description, they still do, are supposed to do liturgically or it's done. I, I think most of them would like to see the reality, the power of what it's supposed to happen theologically. But they're the ones who lay hands on the newly baptized people to stir up or the confirmation later on after the uh, when they're about 12 to stir up the gifts they received in, 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 in baptism. They're the ones who lay hands to consecrate the people going into ministry to have gifts given to those people who are going into ministry. So the consecration of pastors, the laying on of hands of newly baptized people, which is seen to be subsequent, the filling, the activation of gifts is seen to be subsequent to regeneration. Go back and read Catholic theology and Tertullian and, and a lot of the others, and you, you find it. They had this belief that they come into the church in regeneration, in baptism. Now they are fitted and ready to receive the Spirit, and it must make sure that then hands are laid on them and they are anointed with oil and prayed for 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 them to be filled with the spirit after they were regenerated by generated by the spirit. So the the power and also the bishops had the responsibility of defending correct doctrine. Now I do believe that there needs to be more concern among leaders of apostolic networks that we are and that's why I started the seminary that's accredited by the government and because I think that I don't want to hear it anymore. God uh, will offend your heart, offend your head to reveal your heart. We could, we could reverse it. 
also. We're supposed to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Amen. And I don't like anti-intellectualism, and I think it gets us in trouble. And I think that that's one of the things we try to teach hermeneutics and teach proper homiletics as well as hermeneutics and interpretation of Scripture and being able to defend from Scripture and know and know what other major views of the church are so that you can serve in more than one stream. Let me let me ask a question on on clarification. So on Doug and Hawley's position, you know, when they're talking about new apostolic reformation, and I, I hear you saying the vast majority of apostolic networks that you're aware of don't fit this description. But right. when I look at these, you know, me and Michael said, there are some that we go, they do fit that description. And then again, that's not to say that all of them do, or the vast majority of them do. I actually would imagine that you're more familiar with apostolic networks um, in the position, in the, the groups that you run in than we are. So I'll, I'll concede that ground. When I look at these descriptors, you know, they believe the fivefold gifts are hierarchical, right? They believe that there's uh, unique strategies being given in prayer, evangelism, and even teaching in God's word by apostles and prophets. There's some kind of spiritual authority given to individuals when they properly align themselves with apostles and prophets. You know, I think of guys like Robert Henderson who say, hey, if you go to a church, you're just a member of that church, you're trying to pray against Greece, you're going against the wrong throne. You can't just ask, you know, uh, God to, to bring prosperity over Greece. You just can't be done. You actually have to have an apostle over Greece give you apostolic covering over your church. You have to partner with them and not a not in a organizational way, not in a that apostle of Greece has license to your building's papers, but they have to have like some kind of spiritual prayer covering over you so that you can go to this special throne uh, in the heavenlies to pray over Greece. You know, when I read this descriptor, I go, man, I know people. I've read books of people. We've we've watched prophetic words that have you know totally missed and i know you guys have covered some of this stuff of the the trump prophecies and things like this we we watch these guys assert so confidently now maybe we can say you know uh looking at the fivefold as hierarchical isn't heretical i don't think it's heretical i don't think michael thinks it's heretical i think it really gets into the extra biblical practices and extra biblical teachings we would disagree that the fivefold gifts are necessarily hierarchical um, but we don't think that that's really the contentious issue. Um, can you maybe give me some feedback on that? Okay, so the vast majority of the apostolic networks that you're aware of don't fall into this description, but would you be willing to say some of them do and the ones that do should be warned against? Um, and again, I'm not asking you to talk about Henderson or anything else. I don't know how familiar you are with his work, um, but I think that what I, I'm i afraid of is that so many people watch Charismatics um, kind of just blindly say, well, if you speak in tongues, we're not going to see, hear, or, or, you know, or, or, or speak anything evil of you when at the end of the day, you know, we're called to like judge these things. So I, I'd be curious, what, what do we do with people who do fit these descriptions? I think that out of friendship, people ought to talk, talk to them. My, some of my acquaintances and some of my friends with whom I felt like there were some things beginning to be taught that was unhealthy. I went to them and, and, and shared with them where, what my concerns were and what is it that you really are saying here? What is it? Or are you aware of some of your spiritual sons are, are, are teaching this? Um, and I think that's one of the things is just have the dialogue um, because uh, especially if, if the closer you are to people, the more they're going to listen to you. Uh, 
at least we'll give mm-hmm. you a hearing because they don't feel like you got an extra grind. You're not out for them. You're actually wanting to deal with it on the basis of of, uh, of what you feel the scripture says. There's been times I've, with some of my best friends, I've said, I, we don't agree on this. Therefore, in this conference, I don't want you to teach on that subject because I think you're misinterpreting that passage. Or one of these days we're going to get asked a question and we're going to end up disagreeing on our answers. And I just want you to know now that I think that, you know, I don't agree with your answer on that. And we do a lot of things together. So I want you to know I respect you. I love you. I I, I, I have high regard for you. But on this area, on this subject, I, you know, we don't agree. So I think yeah. it's important to be able to do that. Yeah. And, and do you feel as though that sort of structure is in place where people can challenge one another? Uh, one of Holly and Doug's criticisms is it started with Peter Wagner saying, uh, you know, we don't we don't know what the accountability is going to look like for apostles, but a plurality of leadership is sort of weighing us down, slowing us down. And we just need one dude at the top kind of running the show so we can move fast. Kingdom of darkness is advancing. So we need to advance hard and advance fast. We need one guy at the top and we don't know what accountability is going to look like, but we just got to run with it because we got to move. Now that's a big paraphrase. And, uh, and Holly and Doug, they, they put some quotes in their in, in their book that made it seem as though Peter Wagner was saying those kinds of things. Uh, they did have some direct quotes. And, uh, and so my question is about accountability and your experience with churches that are labeled by others as new apostolic reformation. In your apostolic networks, do you have a, a guy at the top that pretty much just runs the show or is it really set up in such a way that that person can have uh, their life and ministry spoken into and challenged? I think the Apostle Paul moved with a team, uh, with his Titus's and Timothy's and Junia and uh, so many others, that he had a team. And most apostolic networks, I believe that there is one person that's usually seen as the key leader. And but often they'll have other people in that network who oversee their own networks that are um, the leader of that network. But almost all of them have a team that they've built around them because they couldn't do what they feel like God's mandate is to be done unless they were working collegiality with collegiality. Now, th- there is times there are, or there are times that. Apostolic leaders can uh, dialogue with each other. Uh, I've actually been on some calls lately in other people's networks that I'm not a part of just, you know, to have input into that they want. Would would you would you come and speak to us? And uh, so I think there is that Uh, even in the even in the Orthodox Church with the patriarchs of the five major or the the major Mm -hmm. church, they have a collegiality. The Cardinals, the, the College of the Cardinals is collegiality. So you've got all these bishops, but then they also have this collegiality uh, as well. So I, I think that um, 
when I did the survey, again, I'm going to go back to that survey. When I asked them, do you, if, if you even have the authority to lead in a hierarchical way, is that the way you lead or do you lead by uh, uh, trying to gain consist, consensus and getting input from other key people? And all, almost 100 yeah. percent of them said we lead from consensus. Yeah. yeah and and I. I would commend that and say that that's great. The more that we can press that out into apostolic networks of any kind that, hey, Paul was an apostle, but he did everything in a team. Man, I, I love to see that. Uh, Randy, this one's a little bit personal for uh, for us. So uh, one of our other co-hosts who's with us on Wednesdays, we did an episode. Uh, it's labeled Fired from NAR Church and uh, or from a NAR Church. And you guys, our viewers, can go back and watch that. Uh, but it, he was part of a, a church that fit the descriptors that Holly and Doug put out there for a new apostolic reformation church. And, uh, and it was really largely based upon, uh, the culture of honor model where, uh, it's the job of the apostle and the prophet to get the vision for the church. Now, I'm not saying they, they went by the book on it. I, I I'm not going to really comment on that. What, what I am saying is their takeaway from that book culture of honor was that there's a, an apostle at the top and it's his job to get a revelation of, of the vision for the church. And that that vision doesn't necessarily come from the scripture. It comes from God's spontaneous revelation. And, uh, and that revelation was this church is going to prioritize prayer above all other things. And hey, praise God for a church that's prioritizing prayer. Uh, but then this led to an unhealthy church structure where uh, it was pretty much get on the bus or get off because we're we're all about prayer. And there were other things that are purposes of a church that a church just has to do that the church kind of uh, left off and didn't prioritize. Like discipleship and, uh, and evangelism. Yeah, discipleship, evangelism, community. It's like, well, we're about prayer. And to me, I want to go, well, well, the scriptures define what the purposes of the church are. The scriptures define what a church is to do. But now you're prioritizing the revelation of a so-called apostle above what the scripture says a church is to do. And so uh, my, our friend ended up being hurt by that. And I just wanted to kind of share that example with you and say, what would you, uh, what would you advise somebody in a church like that? Does that trouble or bother you in any way? It's kind of, what is your response to that? My response to that, Michael, is that that's no different from a pastor of a large church who says, I have the vision. He may not ever use, he may not, he may be against apostles, but he will use the same thing. He will say, I have a vision, get on board or get off. You know, th that mm -hmm. could happen in a non, a church that doesn't even believe in apostles. Anytime mm -hmm person that they, they say this is where we're this is what i feel like god's told me to do this is the direction we're going in and so you, you can get on or get off but i don't think it's right uh, peculiar i don't think it's peculiar to uh apostolic let me uh, i think i think that's a really good point because i i really agree with that i think that that kind of manipulation takes place in baptist churches methodist churches anglican yeah. churches i mean that has to do with sin deeply affecting people. I think that mm -hmm. because we are charismatic and have seen the movement, you know, up close and personal, that we can, oh wow, wow, we see those descriptors. And I think you make a really good point that that is a that's a that's a theme in literally every space where sin exists, right? So uh, I, I think that that's a, that's a good insight. How, how about this idea? We often run over people say, you know, 
You've got no job calling, you know, you've got no responsibility calling someone NAR when they say I'm not NAR, right? Obviously, there's a bit of a discommunication, it seems as if when I listen to Dr. Michael Brown talk about it and when I hear Doug and Holly talk about it, because when Doug and Holly talk about the New Apostolic Reformation, they're referring to someone who fits a certain belief system. But when I hear Dr. Michael Brown talk about it, I hear him saying a, a, a formalized organization and movement. So the way that I look at it is, you know, you can go into an evangelical church today and be like, you know, I think you're dispensational. And they go, you know, just an average person goes, I'm not dispensational. And you go, okay, well, what do you think about Israel? And they tell you what they think about Israel. And what do you think about the end times? And they go, ah, this is what I think about the end times. And you go, hey, mm -hmm. buddy, I, I know you probably don't know about this category, but you're dispensational because of what you believe about <laughs> end times. When you believe Jesus is coming back, how God affects and works with, you know, this body of believers. That's what this theological position is just called, even though you might not affirm it, right? This happens all the time when people say, oh, you know, you're replacement theology. I'm not a replacement theology guy. And we might not like the term or the phrase, but it, it's a specific set of beliefs theologically that are being attributed to people. You know, Lutherans, for example, you follow Luther. They're like, ah, we don't want to be called Lutherans. Luther would roll over in yeah. his grave. Um, how do but we Joshua, Josh, yeah. wait, one of the things that I would disagree, though, Luther got to set, this is who Lutherans are. Wesley got to set, this is what we Calvin got to set, this is what Calvin is. But it's not right for another group to say, here's a, here's a, here's a new movement of churches. We're going to tell you what they are, but they're not on the inside. That's the difference. Well, for example, let me, no, let me say this. I read a lot of books lately on this. They start out and saying, well, it starts with latter rain. And then the latter rain, you got word of faith. And then from word of faith, you you have the uh, third wave movement. And then from that, you go to NAR. And it's all NAR. It's all connected. And some of those movements, for example, the third wave movement and word of faith are almost an, uh, have, they're an, an antithetical to each other. The, they're, they're, uh, they would say, I'm on the opposite side of the swing of the pendulum. And, and yet from some of the critics' perspective, they bring us all together as if this is all one belief system. And if you don't like something, you've seen some abuse in word of faith, and there are people who have abused word of faith. And, and I had a dear friend who was a most balanced word of faith pastor I ever met, who I think proved D.R. McConnell in another gospel totally wrong, proved it beyond shadow of doubt in my mind because he had E.W. Kenyon's personal diary and proved that the, the things that were said in uh, about the influences on Kenyon were wrong. So, but be that as it may, there are people that have abused some of the teachings of in of Word of Faith. And there were some people in Latter Rain that got into some crazy stuff like Manifest uh, Sons of God. And, uh, uh, you know, there were several things that was, I feel like was got off. But then there were others that didn't get off. And you've got, a, you know, like MFI today. Uh, that has roots in it, but they avoided and didn't go the, with the craziness. So when you have all these things, put them together and say, well, these, this is what makes NAR. And th if you have any of these teachings, and, and so it's kind of guilt by association. And instead of looking at the fruit, look at the root and look at the worst things in that root, then you can see why people like myself say, well, I'm really not in that. Well, I, I agree that guilt by association should never be 
And I, because I, we would have people, we'd have Todd White on this program. We would have, obviously we have you on this program. If Bill Johnson wanted to come on, we would have a conversation with Bill Johnson in a heartbeat. Um, easy for us to do that because we, we want to have understanding and ask questions so that we can build bridges, that we can learn. We've had people that we yeah. really disagree with. We, we've done prophecy review videos that they've gotten wrong and they, we wanted them to come on the show and talk. I don't think because someone associates with an individual or shares a platform with that individual, to, to assume that Francis Chan and Michael Koulianos have the same theology, you you have to be living under a box somewhere. It's just it's just not possible. Mm-hmm. You you don't right. know what you're talking about just because they shared the same stage. So um, right. I, I think that you're right. We shouldn't go guilt by association. But when I'm talking about specific categories, that's not okay. guilt by association, right? Like Christians were well, first called you know, Christians, wait. even though they didn't what? make that name for themselves. They they were called Christians the, the 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 heretic groups those who were called uh, the a, a Valentinus or the Manichaeans or the, the the groups that we looked at and when said hey this is a group of individuals that follow the teachings of these guys and they're dangerous uh, even even the Lutherans I know you said that Luther got to define what that was but um, again the the name and the label it, people can decide they believe these deal, theological doctrines we don't have to tell them they believe it. Um, they they teach it on their own, but we're just trying to identify it. Um, I find well, that my, helpful, my though, like in charismatics, is, since we're so broad. How many? You have one of me. How many kinds of Baptist denominations are there? You got free will. You got Southern. You got American. You got particular. Mm-hmm. You know, and they all have a lot of differences and uniquenesses. And in the same way with Free Methodists and United Methodists, you got conservative, you got liberal, and you got a lot of differences. So how many of those viewpoints do you have to agree with or practice to be now in the NAR, especially if there may be, maybe, maybe you got 50% of them and you don't have 50%. Maybe there's 50% you agree with and 50% you don't agree with. Or maybe you agree with the principle, but you disagree with the practice that's drawn out of it. That's, that's my question. We, we make, and we make it too easy to label everybody in AR. Because uh, yeah. I know that some of the views, I don't, you know, some of the views, I would say, yeah, I agree with that. But I agreed with that before ever, before Peter Wagner ever made the term up. Hmm. Yeah, well, I, I think one issue, too, it, it, I mean, for, for me, when it, when it comes to authority, I think you make a valid point that on the ecclesiology side with the one man on the top, you can do that in any ecclesiology, um, yeah. you know, e- even a, uh, one that is ostensibly a plurality of elders. You can still have one man that picks a bunch of yes men and he just dominates them and he leads that way anyway. And that can be a perfectly cessationist church. So you yeah. have the problem anywhere. Now, do you think, though, that there is something inherent within an apostolic structure where it's openly stated, you have one man at the top and it's this. Now, and to be fair, maybe even in the sort of, uh, in the world where you have a bishop at the top, maybe that's a problem too. And, and of course, I'm an elder run plurality guy, so I would say, yes, it is a problem. But, but do you think that there is something inherent in having an apostle at the top who has authority where he can tell the elders of a local church what to do. Do you think that there's something inherently uh, that inherently leads to abuse in that? I think potentially it could. And it, but again, it depends on 
It begins on the heart of the leader. You know, I, I think my problem with it is I know I, I, I know what I've done as far as trying to talk to the people who are apostolic leaders and ask them really strict, straight questions. How do you run? How do you do you have control of finances? Do you unilaterally make control of finance? Do you unilaterally appoint? And I ask all these questions about governments and power. And the answers were no. So either, you know, you could say there may be people that do that. Is it the common experience? Is it normative Mm -hmm. for apostolic networks? No, it's not. Not the ones I've entered. Now, maybe in other continents, because I only know about, you know, like I said, I did a survey was out to 42 people, got about 22 of them back. Most of them were leaders of uh, some of the larger apostolic networks in the United States. And I'm doing the same in Brazil. And, mm-hmm. and, and part of the reason I'm doing it is to try and catch it. Are we finding a network where that is being taught? Then mm-hmm. let's talk. Let's yeah. meet with them. And let's try and work through this and point out how dangerous that is. Well, uh, and, and I'm glad that you're that that is your heart and that's what you want to do. I can imagine that somebody's watching this, Randy, and they're thinking, okay, so 42, you got back 22 surveys. So you interviewed 22, 22 apostolic leaders within your own network, but there are hundreds of no, people no. claiming claiming this label, could it be possible, Randy, that within your own apostolic network, you actually are guiding this really well, and that within your network, people are leading in the context of team and their systems of accountability, et cetera, but that in the, in the broader church of Christ, uh, church of Jesus around the world, that, uh, that people are actually, that these abuses actually are, uh, more rampant. I was misunderstood, Michael. Okay. I wasn't talking about my network. I'm talking okay. about 22 leaders of other networks. And mm-hmm. two of them, one of them oversees a lot of apostolic networks in North America. And another okay. one that oversees a lot of apostolic networks in the world. And I got. So you're saying you know, it, it may sound like a small number, but what you're telling me is basically we're talking about these move. These are movements. So they're touching. Yeah hundreds of churches, thousands of people. This is not just like 22 randoms. Is that kind of what I'm hearing? Thousands, hundreds of thousands of churches combined. Okay, that's good to know. Millions of people and hundreds of thousands of churches in those 22 people. Um, and that doesn't include just, and that's just North America. It doesn't include um, Brazil. And I'm, I'm hoping two or three years from now to be able to do it with my friends in Argentina as well do another survey because I, the point is I wanted to take the criticisms in Pivik and, and, uh, Guyvet's, uh, book and then create the survey that actually tests for that. Now I can say based on preliminary work, the responses in Brazil were more, a little more concerning than in North America. And I'm, I'm hoping to be able to, uh, dialogue. I, I'm not hoping. I know I will be able to because I have a great relationship with the leader. And and he had, he said, I've got 700 churches I'm overseeing. I got 50 leaders. These 50 leaders, the smallest average attendance is 1,700. The other 7,000. This guy has 22,000 in his church, and and they're all traditional. I mean, mainly traditional Baptists. They've come out of the bat. They're still in the Baptist denomination. They're they're still in the convention of the traditional Baptists. 
And yet he said, I don't want to give that question to everybody, but I want to give it to these 50 leaders hmm. and get back what they're mm-hmm. saying. I said, okay, that'd mm-hmm. be good. And, and, uh, let me so, ask you, but, oh, oh, sorry, sorry, I interrupted you. Who are you saying? No, go ahead. No, okay. Uh, when it, when it comes to these, uh, movements, it seems clear though, in my conversation with you now that you would say, Hey, if you are a leader out there and you find yourself in the apostolic or prophetic gifting that you shouldn't just wholeheartedly should not be teaching, um, from your revelation, instituting new charismatic practices, you might make room for like a one-time thing, like, Hey, the Lord is leading us all to, you know, lift our hands unto the Lord and ask him this specific thing, right? It may be room for a one-time event, a one-time thing that God is leading the people to do, but a ritualistic practice instituted for as a new practice, a new teaching for all people everywhere, you would say, you know, a charismatic leader shouldn't be, like, in, when I say unique, for those who are watching who are maybe cessationists, they don't know what I'm talking about, like, uh, in one account of the book of Acts, Agabus, you know, takes off his belt, ties up Paul, and it's like this... It's kind of like this prophetic act and in charismatic spaces at times people will feel led like hey god wants us to worship in this way so we're going to worship in this way so so i'm trying to make room for something like that that would be a prophetic leading yeah. in a service but that, yeah. that wouldn't be institutionalized you would advise anyone who's apostolic or prophetic you would say don't institute new practices new teachings that are foreign from scripture you would just say blanketly don't do that i mean i feel like that's a yes and amen from you is that right I think it'd be a yes and amen, I, but I would say, just because I don't want to paint myself into a corner, I think that there are times that there can be an experience you have that opens your eyes to see something that was in the scriptures all along sure. that you just didn't see it. Agreed. Uh, you know, yeah. uh, Luther's revelation of justification by faith was in the scripture all along. He just hadn't mm-hmm. seen it. So we instituted something. So, um, but, and and I think for a lot of people, for example, I think that when it comes to strategic level spiritual warfare, uh, most of the people who I've met that are involved in that, and I actually was dear friends with the guy who were the main leaders, Omar Cabrera in Argentina. But when I did the interview with him, he never taught any of his leaders, key leaders, how to do what he was doing. He never taught his sons or his spiritual sons. And then he told me, he said, now, when I was just starting this city, do a crusade, uh, he would pray for days to weeks and get a breakthrough and bind the enemy, so to speak. But he said, I would never do that unless in that moment, God showed me what it was I was binding and gave me the authority to do it. And when it happened, I would feel like I was going crazy from the looking crazy from the bug eyed, from the electricity going through my body. I would never just do that unless I sensed God was showing me and give me that authority in that moment. Now he did that, but he never instituted that as a practice for others to do. Mm-hmm. And so, so anyway, I've, with uh, talking, I've read some of the old George, oldest, uh, George Otis Jr.'s books and things. There are usually some things that they see parallels with in the scripture, identificational repentance, you know, that's one of the things the uh, and and whether or not we would agree upon Daniel and, and the and the Prince of Persia issue. The point I was going to say is a lot of the things 
I'm aware of. And I actually went and studied it because I because uh, Wimber was against it. So I went and studied it and I came back and I basically said, I believe it's biblical. I see some biblical basis for it. I believe it can be dangerous. I believe it's some people that's authorized to do it. They're seeing great fruit in it, but they have a direct authorization from the Holy Spirit to do this. And they're walking in a level of holiness to be involved in that. And I do think it, but generally speaking, I don't feel called to do it. I'm not teaching on it. And I haven't basically tried to make a practice of it because I think it could, Mm -hmm. you know, but I'm not, um, but I wouldn't say, you know, that's, that's, there's no basis in scripture for that. I wouldn't say that. Help me understand that because I, I mean, you're saying it's, it's not necessarily unbiblical, but you have to be authorized for it. I don't see like any kind of authorization in the scriptures where someone gets authorized to do high level strategic spiritual warfare. Um, like, like, well, there's other, excuse me. Go ahead. There's a lot of other people that wouldn't agree with Omar because that's one of the things when I went to Argentina, I found out that Wagner's book about strategic level spiritual warfare was misleading, not intentionally, but the, it, it looks like when you read it, it's uh, homogeneous. It's like, here's the way you do it. When I get down there and actually talk to the key leaders in different movements and denominations that were involved, they had they had very different opinions about who should do it, who shouldn't do it. Uh, mm-hmm. So, are you saying that 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 when doing high spiritual spiritual high level strategic spiritual warfare, and what people who are watching who don't understand what we're talking about, it's the charismatic lingo of a practice that I think please correct me, um, was very popular in Argentina. It might have pre-existed that, but was certainly popularized around the Argentinian revival. I'm familiar with it because Steve Hill was in the Argentina space. And since I was kind of in that church, we heard a lot about it. It wasn't necessarily a practice that he endorsed. um, But as I recall, it's like maybe there's a spirit of abortion over Dallas. And, you know, you've got to bind the spirit of abortion. There's like a principality spirit. An apostle. Yeah. An apostle has to identify it and kind of initiate even that, Michael, even that, mm-hmm. even that is not true in the sense of there are people who teach that only apostles can do it. But one of the key leaders down there, Assembly of God guy, he said, one of the best persons I have is a nine year old out in that tent. And they had a kid's army that that were saw more people get healed than the adults did in that particular church. This is AOG church. So mm-hmm. what I'm saying is. Some people would say, yeah, only apostles should do that and can do that. But there were others that said no. And actually, Omar Cabrera, at the last part of his life, said, Randy, 500 people underneath the stage praying and interceding like normal for breakthrough and revival will get you the same effect as what I was doing in the sense of binding and loosing or binding. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, I'd like to just offer a pushback of just kind of where my mind is at right now as I think through the example you shared, it, it, you know, because Josh asked you about the scripture and can there be new revelations about the scripture? I liked your answer. You said the Lord can illuminate. I don't think you use the word illuminate or illumine the scripture, which, of course, in theology terms, we call this illum- the illumination of the Holy Spirit. That Psalm 119 opened my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law that the Lord can bring to light things that were there that we didn't see all, our lo- all along. So you brought up 
Martin Luther, like, you know, this truth of justification by faith had been buried in the scriptures. And then one day it was just open and he saw it and Protestant Reformation and all the rest. And, you know, we're all Protestants and we're saying, hooray, and thank you, uh, Jesus. And, and, and so that's wonderful. Um, but to me, when I think about uh, strategic level war, uh, spiritual warfare, and, and, you know, the mention, say, in, Dan, uh, in the book of Daniel about the prince of Persia, who's this principality over Persia, I think to me the, the difference is um, when we're talking about Luther, we're talking about this was Paul's clear intent. I mean, uh, we as, as Protestants would certainly say it was clear. Paul's clear intention to teach that justification is the, the declaration of righteousness over an individual. And so th this is what Paul was trying to teach. But I, I don't think anybody would, would really say that Daniel's goal in mentioning a prince of Persia was to teach us strategic level supernatural warfare. And, and so it, it comes to this hermeneutic that I think Josh and I get uncomfortable with, which is if it's the author's intent, that's great. Let's go there. We think the Paul's intent in writing the scripture about justification was to teach us how we could be declared righteous before God. But but to me, it feels like it can become unhinged if we make space for charismatic leaders to have revelation, not about the author's original intent, but revelation about things he never intended, but that are now binding on the conscience for believers everywhere, or a new teaching that's that's better and has been lost. So all this to say, it's one thing if the Holy Spirit uh, illuminates a scripture, a, a biblical truth that's been buried, that goes back to the original intention. It's another thing if they read the scripture and see something new that no one has ever seen before in all of church history. That's where I start to get uncomfortable because I'm, I mean, if, if it's spiritual war, strategic level spiritual warfare this generation, what's it going to be in a generation or two generations or three generations? It feels like we could get really off the rails. Do you share that discomfort, Randy, or, uh, or would you understand the whole issue differently than I do? I think that I don't, I don't like to spend a lot of time on something I'm not even I'm not com, I'm not involved in and I don't do and I don't teach. I'm just saying that I I know the some of the I know the some of the key leaders who did teach it and that was involved in it. I know how they got involved in it and I know how as, as his son told me, he said, if he didn't do that and didn't get the breakthrough, he'd spend a few thousand dollars on a crusade because the blinders have, wasn't coming off and not many people would get saved in comparison. Maybe, you know, score a few thousand versus scores of thousands. Uh, the numbers of healings wouldn't be as big. So he 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 could see the effects. And uh, so I don't. I don't think what we're supposed to do is to make a practice out of something that God's told somebody to do something. Because I have to believe that the scripture is really clear. He did tell individuals, like for some of the prophets, to do some weird things. Sure. Now, mm -hmm. they weren't making a practice out of that for all the church or all of Israel or all of Judah to do, but they were to do it. Mm hmm. Well, I can definitely agree with you on that. That, uh, and I like the way you say that because I, I think what makes me uncomfortable is when people 
do teach it as a practice and they write a book that this is a practice because now we have it, it to me it endangers the sufficiency of scripture that in the scripture we have everything that we need for life and godliness and so uh and so if I actually need Peter Wagner's strategy for casting out principalities in order to have, to have full effectiveness in my life and ministry. I feel as though I've endangered the sufficiency of scripture. But I will say this, I, I do think that it is a, a healthy safeguard in the way that you articulated it, Randy, that, uh, that you're not going to make it a, a practice for all Christians everywhere. So that does no. give me some some comfort there. Um, I, I think I would simply say, and, and in the space that Josh and I are in, that that we are going to speak against that because we we think that it's unhealthy when leaders uh, do teach it as though it's this new revelation. Because I, I I just get nervous about being unhinged from an author's original intention, and so in a gentle 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 way, in a loving way, in a brotherly way, I believe that these people are my brothers and sisters in Christ. I still want to speak up. Uh, Right against that practice, um, I but I, I do like the safeguard that you put in place, Randy. Josh, you were about to say something. Yeah, no, um, I think you know as we're talking, I think you know we wanted to try to keep the, the majority of the front end of our conversation about NAR, and then maybe shift some of our conversation towards the end. So this will kind of be my last question. I think probably in the the gnarly space, um, but when it comes to uh, Acts two twenty, this is a big passage for. Uh, Charismatics, continuation, is I think you meant alike. Ephesians two twenty, right? Did I, what did I say? You said Acts. Acts. Definitely meant Ephesians two twenty. That the foundation in, in of the Bible two twenty by the apostles and prophets. <laughs> Ephesians two twenty. I don't know why I said Acts two twenty. I apologize. Um, yeah, you can't even uh, say it's one of those seventy uh, moments. So I think I can. Yeah, yeah. What, what do you What do you think <laughs> about that? How do we How should we understand that Charismatics as a whole? Should we be looking to apostolic leaders and prophetic leaders as setting some kind of foundation for the church? In what way should we interpret this? I think it has to interpret. I think we can interpret it two ways. I think the primary m intention was that through the apostles and and the prophets, and there is debate in the church as to whether that's New Testament uh, prophets and apostles, or if it's the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles that in within Christianity, within commentators, there's there's debate on how it's to be interpreted. But the foundation is the foundation of Christ and the uh, what would become the which wasn't even in all in place, even when that was written. But the apostolic teaching. Um, and so I believe that that foundation. Was something that happened and was completed uh, by the end of the first century. Um, OK. But I also believe that another way that that is uh, can be interpreted and and would be a fair and not a non it wouldn't be unbiblical. Mm -hmm. For example, Roland and Heidi Baker, when they developed their work in Mozambique, and they went from one church to thousands of churches, million people getting saved, and they, and they got all these new believers that know nothing. They don't know the difference between Abraham and Adam. People are being raised from the dead, but there's very little understanding and doctrine. They're they're literally having to lay foundations apostolically. They would Heidi would say, "I'm just a little old woman in the dirt. I hate that." Or she doesn't say hate, but I don't like to use that title. I don't, and she doesn't use that title. Neither's Roland. But from an outside looking in, if there's anybody that has apostolic gifting that went into a, a new area. 
and put and developed, established a church where there really wasn't hardly any uh, church to speak of. And particularly in the, in the Muslim areas where they've had hundreds of people martyred now, uh, hundreds of their pastors martyred. Um, they had to establish the doctrine. Now, they are establishing doctrine based upon Scripture, but they're the ones that's, you know, establishing it for that movement. They're laying the foundations. They had to lay the foundation. Mm-hmm. What, what happens to a person that gets saved and, and, they, and they have more than one wife? They had to work out the foundations for that, and they didn't work it out the same way everybody else did That was in um, that kind of a, a, a culture. So they really, in my opinion, over the last 20 some odd years, have laid a foundation for a church as far as ecclesiology, as far as liturgy, as far as a view of uh, how they view um, Lord's Supper, baptism, marriage, uh, all the basics for that movement. And so it, it, it just didn't materialize out of thin air. So Somewhat, they were in that capacity, and that's what they have done. And so, in that sense, they—they're not talking about the foundation for all of the church, but they were laying the foundations for the part of the church that they were establishing. And I think that that has to be done when we go into an area where there is no church, right? And but you would say that that foundation is based upon very directly the teachings of Scripture. Not yes. that they go in and they teach new doctrines that they've received when they went up on a mountain and prayed and God is saying this and that, and that's your new teaching. I think what I hear you saying is, yes, they're, they're laying a foundation for the church because there's not a church established there. Uh, and there is an apostolic gifting that is present, but this is not directly, th- this is not a, a new teaching. It's actually teaching new people about an old teaching, the teaching of the original apostles. The same so way that, that we would look at what missionaries, right? Like missionaries go into a region, they teach doctrine, yeah. make disciples. They are missionaries. Like, yeah. The Latin word for missionary comes from the Greek word apostle. Right. Right, Michael, I and interrupted they, you there, man. Yeah, no, no, that's good. I I think that's uh, that's important because uh, in, in Doug and Holly's book, one of the, in fact, the, the quote that I read earlier as I said at the beginning, was based on Ephesians 2.20, that the apostles and the prophets are bringing this new foundation to the church, which as the, as the book plays out, it's this new revelatory foundation that they're laying. And to be fair to Doug and Holly, that is sometimes articulated. I'm certainly glad to hear that you're not articulating that. And I think one of our takeaways there uh, here is that there isn't a monolith in, uh, in whether we want to call it the NAR or just charismatic Pentecostal. There, there's not a monolith here and, and there's going to be a variety. And, and Randy Clark is, uh, is one of the, the biggest leaders in this and, and is mentioned a number of times in Doug and Holly's book. And he thinks differently than, than the way it was articulated there. So I, I think that's uh, helpful to know. Language is a big problem, though. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that, we don't use language the same way. I don't use the word revelation to mean what Doug and Holly mean by it, and, and many other people. For example, I believe in general revelation through nature, you can know a little bit about God. Sure. But saving knowledge of God is known in special revelation, which is the canon and limited to the canon. But I also mm-hmm. I use the word revelation. Others say, well, I wish you wouldn't use it. 
but I, but to me, it just makes more sense because that's, I believe in what I call specific revelation. Specific revelation mm-hmm. is not special revelation, never is meant to be spe- special revelation and shouldn't be turned into special revelation because it's when God's giving you information about what, uh, something you need to know or something somebody else, your knowledge of that's going to help somebody else, a prophetic word, a word of knowledge. Uh, you're a cessationist. You're praying about whether or not you should take a church and something happens and say, yeah, and you feel like that's God leading you. I should take that church. That's special revelation. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you use the term, I could say it's illumination, and that would be all right. Or I could right. use the term, well, apostle, and now it's all right. So, I mean, an apostle, yeah. The apostle Paul so, uses the so, word revelation. Yes, and, and, it, yes. and a number of times, Ephesians one. I pray that they may have the spirit of wisdom and revelation, revelation and which is the Holy yeah. Spirit. Yeah, which is the Holy Spirit. Uh, yes, and also Philippians three sixteen. Uh, it says that if anyone thinks differently, then God will reveal it to him. So I don't have a problem with the word revelation. I don't have a. I don't have a problem with the way that that you're talking about it. That the Holy Spirit can reveal special things at special times, never in contradiction to the ultimate authority of revel, uh, revelatory authority, which is his holy words. So, uh, so I don't have a problem with that. Do you, Josh? No, I, I, I don't. Um, you know, when we're talking about revelation, I think that we, like you said, we, we can speak past each other. And I was talking to a pastor today, you know, when you think of the Tower of Babel, you think of group groups of people who are working together. And then because there's difference in language, they're not able to walk together, move together. And when we talk about even Pentecost, this is 16 geographical regions that are unified because of this unknown tongue, if you will. And and I think for charismatics, one of the things that we really, really need to do is learn the people who we disagree with, learn their vocabulary, because we often just yeah. speak past each other. And I think this is really important for both sides, for the cessationist and the continuationist to really be well-versed in both arguments, in both sides, and be bilingual in a sense, right? So that when you hear a person, you know where they stand, and it's like, okay, explain this to me, right? Like when we're sitting here talking to Randy, he's going to have a completely different approach to, he's going to say, I mean, the very top of the show, he's talking about apostolic movements, new apostolic movements, you know, and he'll say, he'll call them networks, but he doesn't mean the new apostolic uh, reformation in the same way that Doug and Holly are going to use that phrase. So it's important that when we have these discussions that we are able to frame them. When I hear Doug and Holly talk about new apostolic reformation, what I can't do is impose all of the YouTube video heretic hunters, the way that they're using that phrase onto Doug and Holly. And when I hear, you know, uh, uh, Randy use the word revelation, I can't take all of the wackadoodle charismatics who are off in la la land and and take their word revelation and apply that to randy it's just not fair we don't do that to scriptures we don't do that to our hermeneutics when we read the bible um so it's really it's best to be well versed and well read in all of these things and it really displays christian love for our brother uh, this is something i really want to stress there's a lot of people in the comment section who are bent out of shape that we're even talking to you randy and i think that it displays a level of spiritual immaturity amongst people who are in the comment section doing this right now, because our whole goal should be to listen and to learn and to ask uh, questions, not just to assume, not just to throw grenades. Uh, I think that I can, at the end of the day, start with a disagreement with you, end with a disagreement with you. But if I'm trying to contend to learn uh, and I'm actually contending with the scriptures to search for truth uh, and I'm, I'm actually trying to fight for the bond of peace, uh, not 
you know, again, blindly agreeing with everyone, uh, but really sussing through this. I think it's really important. Randy, if, if you were to encourage average people out there, okay, Remnant Radio listeners, how they should, I guess, strive for this bond of peace, because there is such a, a, a wideness, a vastness in this movement. How would you advise people to, to really kind of contend for peace, not just to throw rocks at each other so that, you know, our theological group's better than your theological group, but how can we contend for this as a community of Christians? Well, first of all, I, I hailed this bo- a book up here. This is J.P. Moreland, Kingdom Triangle. Yeah, he's been on our show. Talks, yeah, I know. And he talks about recover the Christian mind. He's not against intelligence. He's not against. I mean, he's a philosopher, educator. Renovate the soul, dealing with the emotional side of our life and our soul and the will, and then restore the spirit's power. And in, in it. He teaches the same school that Holly and Doug teach at or mm-hmm. Holly worked at and teaches at. And and what I wanted to say, just for a lack of understanding, because one of the questions that some uh, was was asked, how did I think someone asked me, how did I write the forward to um, Bill's um, uh, book in which it's he's accused of um, uh, denying the deity of Jesus and. And this, and this, this is a quote from um, J.P. Moreland, who quotes Thomas Oden, which basically it sounds very similar. And I just, uh, just uh, two to three sentences here. When I was, this is J.P. Moreland. Uh, when, when I, when I was saved in the late 1960s, I was taught that Jesus' miracles proved that he was God because he did them from his divine nature. It has become clear to me, however, that this was wrong, for Jesus' public ministry was done as he, a perfect man, did what he saw his father doing in dependence on the filling of the Holy Spirit. And then he quotes Thomas Oden and in a similar, in a similar way that he says. And, and um, he talks about, and Thomas Oden talks about Jesus doing things dependent upon the Spirit. Now, Bill doesn't have a lot of college or any. He doesn't have seminary at all. And so when I sat down and I, I read part of that, I said, Bill, I think this could be a problem. People are going to misunderstand you. They're going to think you don't believe in the, the deity of Jesus. He said, no, but I do. I, and he'd say, I don't believe he didn't have them. He chose not to use them. And so he did things out of his humanity. But... Uh, it's called spirit Christology. And there's a lot of people who would talk about that in a much more articulate way in the sense of using the right theological terminology, making sure they're uh, covering the deity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus and the hypostatic union. But one of the things I wanted to say was that that sounds so much like what Bill said. And this is from Mm -hmm. a guy that is not a heretic. But he, but you have to read it in context, and uh, mm-hmm. so my thing is uh, knowing Bill, knowing what he really believed. That's how I could write the forward to it because I knew that hmm. he didn't deny that Jesus uh, was the second person of the Trinity, or he didn't deny the deity of Jesus. Right. Sure. Just, okay. We have that in a lot of our writings, a lot of our conversations. We've had that conversation. Um, uh, okay, so. Yeah, at face value, if you were to read that phrase, I mean, you even saw it and thought, okay, this is yeah. what that, that, that looks like, and people are going to see that. Um, 
Yeah, and Josh, can I interrupt you really quick and just read? Can I read the quote from Bill Johnson's book? Sure. Um, he, Jesus, laid his divinity aside, see Philippians 2, 5 through 7, as he sought to fulfill the assignment given to him by the Father. So that's on page uh, 87 to 88. So the key phrase is Jesus laid his divinity aside. And the reason this was uh, this stirred up such a controversy is it seemed like Bill was saying Jesus stopped being God for a time when he walked the earth, which we would call the uh, canonic heresy. Okay, so Josh, there's the quote. Why don't you finish your thought? Well, I was going to say that Bill Johnson is clearly, uh, I say, repented of this, admitted that he has poorly articulated it, right? That that's yeah. uh, that to me is sufficient for what I would call repentance. But um, Facebook posts, uh, you know, that are old, you can go look them up. They're old. They exist. We've showed them on air before. I didn't have the quotes accessible at this moment. Uh, he went on Dr. Michael Brown's show, talked about that. I guess my question would be like, people are looking to to you as the theologian of that movement. And they're like, hey, words have meaning. You know, you wrote the forward to this. And I know that you you know he meant this, but like, why why would you write the forward to something? And this is the way that the question's often posed to me. That's why I'm posing it this way to you. Why would you write the forward to something knowing that it was going to, it, it sounded heretical and knowing that uh, it was going to cause division? Like, um, would, would it have been, possible to go, hey, if you change this word, I'll endorse it in a heartbeat or this paragraph or this phrase, maybe kind of speak into that for me, because uh, that's a concern that I think a lot of people have when it comes to this. They can make sense of Bill, you know, maybe not articulating it perfectly. Um, Yeah, right. I think part of it, I mean, part of it was I knew what he meant. And that I forgot what year that was that book came out in. Uh, probably today, if he, you know, I would. I say, let's word this differently. Uh, I think there's a lot of things I'm aware of now. Like, I, I didn't feel like we needed to start a seminary back then either. But so many things have changed. And so there's been so many teachings that I disagree with that needs to be ad- addressed. That <laughs> one of the, That's one of the reasons why, mm-hmm. you know, we started it, to, to be yeah. able to address these issues and to raise up people who, have a better understanding of hermeneutics. And uh, at the time that you published it, at the time that you wrote the endorsement, did you realize, I mean, I'm sure that you realized, but it's worth the question that that the this particular issue was super, super important to mainline evangelicals? I think I knew that that was an important issue. I just thought that in the rest of the book that he has enough. I was thinking it like in a sermon, <clears throat> there's times if you're trying to prove the humanity of Jesus and, and not trying to have a uh, a dynamic, uh, forgot the word I'm looking for, where it's just. You can lean so hard into one that you can make it seem like I, you can lean so you hard into like his humanity that, yeah, right. it, it's hard so to be careful. You yeah, got I think to. for a lot of people. Go ahead. Yeah, and so I, I many times in his sermon, he'll say things, and I've said things in the sermon, but I know I'm getting ready to balance it in the next paragraph, you know, mm-hmm. or the next point, you know. So if you take that part by itself out of context, it um, can be it can be misleading. That's okay. why so, I like doing healing schools where you get to speak a lot of times and we can nuance things so much better. Yeah. 
but basically, you felt like there was enough content in the rest of the book that made it obvious that Bill believed Jesus was and has always been God, that this wouldn't yeah. become the issue that it did, but it yeah. did become the issue that it did. It <laughs> and uh, for the record, Bill, like, like Josh said, he's, uh, he said he was sorry for that wording, wasn't trying to cause confusion, confusion right. and has has since updated it, but really uh, kind of the, well, he said he would, I want to be very clear. He has since said that he would try and update it with the publisher. It hasn't been, it was published in 2003. Oh, it hasn't been updated yet, but in the rediscovering Bethel videos said it would be updated. Sorry. Okay. I wanted to okay. Yeah. Thanks for that. Okay. So, but, but really where, where this question was getting at was that some people watching this, Randy, they're going to say, well, Randy can't speak authoritatively because Randy em endorses heretical Christology. So we're setting setting the record there that you believe in the hypostatic union. You believe Jesus yeah. fully God, fully man. You believe in one triune God. You believe in all the doctrines yeah. of the historic Christian church. And, and just for our viewers, so you guys know, uh, we're going to have people on this show that, dis that disagree with us on different points. And we are going to treat people like brothers and sisters if they're all, uh, if they line up with what is historically orthodox. And uh, we're not going to have people who are heretical on the show. We're not going to have people who are not orthodox uh, on the show. But even in conversation, we're going to treat them like human beings. We're still going to be kind. It's a fruit of the spirit after all. But I want to come back to this. Uh, we have the issue, the two, I think, big controversial uh, matters, uh, Randy, that, that our viewers are going to bring up. One is, Randy endorsed that book. And the other is the Toronto blessing and, uh, and particularly some of the manifestations that occurred in that. And so Randy, I wonder if you could, first of all, inform our viewers, those who don't know what the Toronto blessing was, what your role was in it. And, uh, and, and maybe your understanding of what some of the criticisms were. It began January 20th, 94, when I went there for four days and it went for 12 and a half years, six nights a week, the longest protracted meeting in a North American re revival history. It resulted in, I think, within the first two or three years, 55,000 churches coming from all around the world. It had, uh, it had, it wasn't as, um, it wasn't as Arminian as Toronto, I mean, as Brownsville war, was as far as how you can lose your salvation, how many times you can be saved. So <laughs> I respect that. You know, the, the, we didn't have as many salvations, but we, we, but we're our view is, you know, a little different on that. But people could keep, so, people could but keep you're it. saying that the, the thousands that got saved, stay saved. They didn't get saved over and over. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but what I wanted to say was that Azusa Street led more people came to the Lord. 80% of all Christians south of the equator today have a Pentecostal type experience. Whether they have a Pentecostal theology or not, they have a Pentecostal type experience and a biblical worldview that'd be more similar to the Pentecostal worldview. Uh, so the, the success of what happened in from 1906 to 1909 in particular uh, at Azusa Street wasn't what happened in numbers of people that got saved at Azusa Street, but what God did with the people who got renewed and filled and received impartation and activation in Azusa Street resulted then in this huge revival. 
And the same thing is very clear about that has happened with Toronto. Um, there are millions of people who've been saved as a result of, of people who got touched in Toronto. Uh, there are scores of thousands of churches that were started um, as a result. And uh, it, it, was a, it was a focus on burned out Christians getting renewed and being refreshed. And uh, initially there was quite a few people getting saved, but when it got to the point that you had to get there two hours early to get in and everybody's lined up uh, for maybe four hours early, uh, most of them are from out of the country. Then there wasn't even the ability for unsaved people to get into the building to get saved because mm -hmm. it was uh, limited. Um, having said that, I would say that uh, I was there 42 of the first 60 days, and then I went back a week in August and a week in October. And I went back then usually one or two weeks a year for the first maybe next 10 years, and then less than once a week. The manifestations that I seen, I had seen 10 years earlier in my Baptist church, as far as the crying, the laughing, the shaking, the falling, all that had happened. When we were first visited by the Spirit, when um, Blaine Cook came to my church, so that none of that was new. Um, it was just more, and, and it was stronger in the sense of uh, uh, I'd never seen people get froze that couldn't move. I'd never seen people like what we call pogoing for 45 minutes, which is impossible and natural to do. Those were new things. Um, the animal sounds didn't occur until the summer. I went there in January, and I remember John called me in the summer and told me when it when that had started, uh, I could put on, and I was in a uh, 180 days minimum up to 265 days a year going and doing two to six meetings a day. Um, I could put on both hands the number of times I was in a meeting where there were animal sounds. Um, so people, that was people one of the making things that I would have that, So people are well, making lion roar. They're roaring like a roaring lion. Like lion. There. And, and, and that and I and when I was told how that happened, it made total sense to me. You know, Gideon you share? from Vancouver. You know, he has this prophetic. He feel like the Lord told him when the Lion of Judah roars, the dragon that's kept the Chinese people in bondage for five thousand years is going to be defeated. And then prophetically, he roared. He went to Toronto. A lot of Asians were in the church. He told that they roared when that was shared in Anaheim. A, a lot of roaring started. And I was there, and the majority of the roaring was from Asians. Um, I would have pastored. You asked me the question. Would I? It's in my one of the notes. You said you may ask me was Would I pastored anything different? That's the one thing I would have done differently. I wouldn't have drawn any attention to the animal sounds. As a matter of fact, Wimber told me his favorite sermon was a sermon I was teaching called Jesus, and it was at the time the animal sounds were beginning to get a lot of attention. And I was teaching from the inside to bring correction that Jesus was to be the point of our mountaintop experience. Jesus should be the point of our mess preaching. Jesus should be the point of the healing. And uh, and then and then one of the others, the last one was Jesus. Jesus, the Lamb of God on the throne, should be the focus of our worship, not the four living creatures surrounding Him. That was an in intentionally meant to bring a correction from within to what I felt like was unhealthy.
emphasis. Okay. Cool. Okay. Well, now, yeah. So, so <laughs> if you were to, if you were to kind of, you gauge the manifestations, Randy, would you say, uh, I think I asked you this in one of those questions I sent you over, like, would you say, okay, we all say this in every movement. Edward said this, okay? It could be carnal. It could be demonic. It could be the spirit, right? We've done yeah. tons of videos on this. We encourage people if they want to know Remnant Radio's position on this. We've done videos on slain in the spirit. We've done videos on Jonathan Edwards' manifestations and things like that where we we yeah. talked through these things and we think they're very fruitful systems to think through. If you were to look at yeah. the movements in Toronto, if you had to gauge them percentage-wise, you know, would you say that what what would be your take of it? The vast majority of it was the work of the spirit. Like, how would you how would you gauge that? And and I know uh, you mentioned things you would have done differently when you say you would have um, the 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 noises, the animal noises in particular. You would have tried to police that in such a way that would have been, you know, instructive, corrective, something like that. Is I want to make no, sure. I'm probably right. what I, what I meant by that is I would not have just focused on it. I wouldn't have whatever you give attention to. You feed. I would have starved it instead of fed it. I don't. I don't think I. I would have explained how it got started, and 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 I was in a meeting in Anaheim when it was, it, two guys starts roaring. I'm praying for people up in a hard to receive room that Wimber sent up there for me to pray for all those, and I'm praying for them the peace of God to come basically because that's what happened to me. I received peace. I was on the verge of a nervous breakdown, and it just it healed me. So I asked the guys. I said, you know. I'm not asking you to stop, but would you mind going out in the hallway and going down the hall and roaring down there because it's actually working against the piece <laughs> in here? I, I, I just, I I'm you. laughing. It just, that's just a funny conversation to me. I could, <laughs> could just you, see like some, could you just roar over there by the cry room in a church and hearing yeah, a roar no, emitting just, from the, <laughs> the cry room? I would say that 80% of what was happening was God. No, 70% was what's happened. I've never said this before. I'm, I'm not, this is not science, but I would say about 70% was God. 20% was flesh. 10% was demonic. Hmm. That's, hmm. That, that, that's a helpful, I mean, it's a helpful take. You know, I think that people who are on the outside, I think people should look at the Edwards criteria for these things. I think it's super fruitful. It's super helpful when you think of the missions organizations that have been sent from Toronto, when you think of, the the people who are starting church planting churches all over the world because of toronto um i think that that those things those kinds of fruits that remain the faith and repentance that is being preached that's fruit that remains that you can look at now i think yeah. that in every movement you know those are the launching pads of also some odd people odd individuals um who claim those i mean i remember uh working with pastor steve and i didn't work with the guy directly much i worked with some of his uh his, his disciples who would tell stories of like, I shook that guy's hand and he put on his website that I discipled him, you know, like, uh, you know, so there is definitely people who take their, their claim to fame as being from Toronto that were barely associated with their movement. Um, so I think that it's good to go, Hey, uh, there are people who preach faith and repentance that came out of Toronto. Let's praise that. There are people who, um, have an unholy fascination with odd manifestations and lacks Jesus as the center of any revival and those who would want to, we would call to repentance. And, you know, Randy, I like the overall thrust, I think, for the charismatics out there watching that that should be a great way to tie this episode up. Keep it on Jesus. Keep him the center of our message. Let's pe preach a message of faith and repentance. 
these other things are tertiary. These other manifestations are, uh, man, they're a blessing and an encouragement to the body of Christ, but we don't want to get our focus on those things. We want to get our focus on Jesus preaching the gospel, calling people to the mission of reconciliation. Uh, and I think that's probably, you know, the area of greatest agreement between the three of us uh, is holding Christ central to all of this. Uh, let me ask you guys mm -hmm. both if, if you want to have like kind of a closing thought when it comes to um, really the most of our NAR discussion for today. Uh, I'll toss it over to Michael. What would you say that, that one closing thought is you people thinking about meditating on? Uh, Randy, same kind of question. What's that one thing you want people thinking about and meditating on? Uh, also, Randy, I do have a question about that survey, and I'll, maybe I'll leave that to the end. But Michael, let me start with you. Uh, I'll toss it over to you. What would be your closing thought for today's episode, sir? Yeah, I, I think for one, the New Apostolic Reformation, if it exists, Josh and I kind of think it does, Randy doesn't. But either way, it's not a monolith. And I don't think the label is necessarily that important anyway, be, uh, because it's not a monolith. And I, and I think what's what's especially important, and I, and I think we all agreed upon this, is, uh, is num this, with this central issue of authority. Number one, somebody who's labeled an apostle or a prophet um, if they have an authoritative new teaching that is binding on the consciences of all Christians everywhere in the same way that the scripture is binding on the conscience for all Christians everywhere, if they're putting out a new teaching about a way we need to do church, about a way we practice holiness or prayer or any of the things the scripture commands us to do, but they're seeing insights that nobody has ever seen in the history of the church and 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 making this the new rule by which christians are to follow and they're using their authority in that way whether we call it a nar church or whether we don't stay away from such a church that would be number one number two i would say still in the realm of authority we move from new teachings now to ecclesiology church structure and uh, i think randy as you eloquently said uh, you can you can have abuses of power in any system, uh, whether it be, you know, an Episcopal church structure or whether it be where there's sort of an apostle at the top of a pyramid. Uh, and I liked what you said, Randy, about, you know, the Apostle Paul did everything with a team. And so uh, I, I think at the core, I mean, I'm an elder led church kind of guy. That's going to be my my approach. But I, I think the biblical principle there is plurality. The biblical principle is we need accountability one with another. And so if there's an apostolic leader or any leader for that matter, who can't be corrected and who isn't accountable and who basically sets the way things are to go and, and no one can really speak into that, uh, pay attention to that market. And I wouldn't be a part of that church. I think it's a recipe for getting hurt. And then when it comes to revival, I think that there is uh, this balanced space of we want to uh, we want to both shepherd and make space. And what I mean by that is on the making space side, we want to make space for the Holy Spirit to move. And and when the Holy Spirit moves, there might just be things that happen. There might be manifestations. And Jonathan Edwards, uh, you know, he he wrote extensively about this. And Josh said we we did shows about this. We, we want to make space for the Holy Spirit to to move and not just be stuck in ritual. At the same time, if in the midst of that movement, it, it looks like people are getting fleshly and it looks like the the devil is uh, is doing a work in the midst of that, that needs to be shepherded in a clear way. 
And so I, I think there's this tension and this balance where we actually need to do both. And I think we tend to get on one side where some one side is like make space. I can't shepherd it or I, or I, I'm putting a governor on the Holy Spirit. Uh, and it's like, no, you can actually make space while shepherding. And on the other side, so concerned about error, we're only going to shepherd, but they're not going to make any space for the Holy Spirit to move. They're just going to criticize those who do. And I say, no, there's there's actually this balance here where I can make space for the Holy Spirit and I, and I can also shepherd what that is to look like and keep it within biblical bounds. Excellent. Thank you, Michael. Randy, I, I wanted to get your kind of closing thought, but I also wanted to know, is there a way that we can make your survey accessible? I know we've mentioned it a couple of times in the interview. Um, do you all have it posted? Are you having research that you're going to be releasing uh, where all this stuff is published somewhere just so that people can follow up, even yeah. if it's not published yet, where it will be published so that people can find it? Uh, so I, I would like to yeah. tag that along with the closing thought there. Well, I think, first of all, uh, Joshua, eventually we will give you permission to get it out there for us. Right now, I want to, we're, I'm going to put it on uh, academia and uh, with uh, responses from the seminary students at, at the seminary. I asked them to write responses to the main issues uh, Doug and Holly uh, raised in their book. And it was it's, it's, it's a, a reasoned response. And we want to get those on academia first. And, uh, and then I would like to be able to go... Um, I'd like to actually be able to compare it with the Brazilian one, and I haven't, that's not ready yet. So we will do that, and we will make all these things available. We're, hopefully, we'll even have electronic books or things that people can get. Uh, also, just one thing that's free, you can, you can um, Google Randy Clark's dissertation, and we sell it for $50. It's free, and you'll get it off of Google or Academia. And it goes into the 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 way I like to write everything is what does the Bible say? What does uh, theology say? What does church history say? And, and historical theology and church history about this issue and what's happening contemporaneously and what are we learning? I like to approach things from from that perspective. And and uh, the dissertation is on the effects of Christian prayer, a study of the effects of Christian prayer on chronic pain and loss of function or range of motion from uh, clinically or surgically implanted materials. But it deals with a hist uh, history of healing, biblical basis for healing. I deal with cessationism. I deal with liberalism. I deal with conservatism, the views of healing, and in the st actual study of healing. And there's a Man, the man who wrote the second one who did the study with uh, Candy Brown and Josh Brown on the uh, uh, inter uh, intercessory prayer up close, um, mm -hmm. the second scholar uh, wrote the uh, introduction to my thesis uh, basically because he helped me develop it in the sense of the scientific part of it. So it was a medical study as well as a theological study dealing with healing. It's one of the first ones that's ever been done. Matter of fact, it is the first one that's ever been done of on this character, this this many people, this many continents and everything. And it's free. Excellent. And the hey, other thing Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I was just that uh, did you have something else to add to that? I didn't mean to interrupt you. Well I just want to say before we got offline, if you're interested in Toronto, this book is there is more is meant to be a defense biblically and what happened? What's the fruit? 
That's what Edwards asked for. What is the fruit? So there's more. And this book on a similar subject, Baptized in the Spirit, God's power resting upon you of power, God's Spirit resting on you of power. This goes into the history of the church. It's biblical. It's theological. It's got a lot of great quotes from um, throughout the history of the church about the issue. And I'm not really, a, I, don't, I don't have a classical Pentecostal view about baptism spirit. I don't have a classical evangelical view either. I, I just see diversity in the New Testament. I see a diversity in church history. I see diversity today. And I try to just say, here's, here's what I think the scripture says. And I think people find it uh, interesting. If you have any viewers that's Catholic, my a dear friend of mine, this gifts of the Holy Spirit, Dr. Mary Healy, she and I wrote that together to say that this is not a Protestant Catholic issue about the Holy Spirit and his gifts. And if anyone wants to know more about healing, the, my two, I've written about 40 books. My two favorite is this one, Power to Heal and the Healing Breakthrough. And this deals with, pra- this one deals with practices and teachings that hurt faith for healing and practices and teachings that will help faith for healing. And uh, this is a very practical one about just how to learn how to follow God and be dependent upon God. The difference between Christian healing and new age healing is that new age healing, you're a free agent. You're learning how to manipulate, which is sorcery, which is witchcraft, manipulate power and energy. And in the Christian healing, you don't manipulate. You see what the father's doing and you bless what he's doing. And it's his energy, not ours, that does the healing. So I try to, you know, explain some of that. Excellent. Thank you, Randy, for coming on and and, uh, helping us uh, understand the other perspective of uh, those who are inside the charismatic movement who don't think that the new apostolic reformation labels uh, that are posited by Doug and Holly are helpful. Um, I think that it's uh, it's a good part of the discourse and discussion, guys. Here in Remnant Radio, our, our our passion, our desire is to help you break outside of your theological echo chamber. It's really important as Christians to love God with all of our mind that we introduce ourselves to new ideas, new thoughts that might be contrary to the things that we believe and the presuppositions that we have when talking about theology uh, and engaging with people within our own denominations and within our own churches. So if you're interested, hey, I want to hear all the perspectives from charismatics, from cessationists, all the positions from those who are amill, premill, postmill, Calvinist, Arminian, all the theological positions this is what we're trying to do is create conversation and dialogue amongst people within Orthodox Christianity to discuss these issues. Uh, obviously, we can't interview Anglicans, Methodists, Presbyterians, Lutherans, Baptists, and Pentecostals and agree with all of them, or else there wouldn't be a ton of denominations. But what we can agree on uh, is that there was a man uh, named Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, who died 2,000 years ago for your sins. You got to repent and believe the gospel, folk. So, Uh, If you're out there, you've been blessed by this video and other videos that we have done, we would encourage you to give in the links in the description. You can give a one-time gift there on PayPal or a reoccurring gift there on Patreon to support the ministry tomorrow. We're going to be covering this pesky little topic of false teachers uh, and why we interview people that many label false teachers and what criteria we are using when talking about false prophets and false teachers. I think it's going to be a really exciting episode. You guys might see Michael Miller there in the comment section. He will be joining us in that discussion. Randy, again, thank you so much for coming on. I know coming on and talking to guys that kind of disagree on some areas can be a little uh, rattling and nerve wracking, but I really appreciate your bravery and courage to come on and discuss with us. Uh, Really enjoyed the program and, uh, and thankful 
for your time in this discussion. Now, Josh, I'm a third wave evangelical. Come on, That's man. That's how I would self-identify. Cool. Not as in AR. Blessings. Yeah. Excellent, guys. Okay. We will see you next time tomorrow, 4 p.m. to 5 p.m. Central Time. Blessings. Want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew. And you need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description, and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classrooms. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of REMNANT Radio.